I'm going to be reading uh, another lengthy uh, uh, passage of Scripture this morning, and um, it's gonna, this is going to wrap up our series that we've been going through for the last number of weeks here from uh, the book of John, looking at the signs of Jesus. Um, I've, as I mentioned in the, in the welcome this morning, I always viewed this series and the series to come as companion series, sort of part one and part two, as it were, um, different focuses, different emphases, but, um, but two, two parts of a whole. Um, but that's next week we're going to be going back and working through John again, but with a different uh, lens on as, than what we've had these number of weeks. Um, but to finish today, we're going to be in John chapter 11. And this is one of my favorite chapters, really, in the book of John, and, and I would even say perhaps in, in the entire Bible. I've, I've preached from this passage uh, a number of times before. Uh, I even preached from this passage three years ago here in this setting. Now, it's not going to be the same sermon, so don't, don't worry about that. Uh, not that any of you remembered it anyway. But, um, but I've preached in, in other venues. I've preached, I've preached this at funerals. I've preached this in uh, Bible college chapels. Um, I preached this at my wife's church in Mississippi. It's a passage that has resonated with my own heart and really touched, touched me. But I've never preached it like I'm going to preach it this morning. Um, it's just in my study time and, and even where I, I wanted to go in the trajectory of my sermon prep, uh, the Lord led me a totally different direction. And so I hope you'll, you'll permit me to do that today. Um, we're going to be back here uh, on Easter Sunday. So there's a lot in this chapter, and we're just not going to cover it all today. And I never intended to cover it all. And some of the key points from this chapter we're not even going to touch on. We're going we're gonna to save those for, for seven weeks from now. Um, but uh, I do want to read ver- verses 1 through 46. Okay, so I know that's a lot. Now, I, I preached this before and preached on one verse, verse 35. Uh, so you're not getting the one-verse treatment. You're getting the 46-verse treatment here today, okay? All right, All right so uh, John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, this is the story of Jesus raising Lazarus. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem, with his sisters Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick, so the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God, so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he is sleeping, he will soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus had meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been dead in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Mary and Martha in their loss. 
When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises on the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. And then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him, he asked them. And they told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believed? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. And then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Many of the people who were there, who were with Mary, believed in Jesus when they saw this happen, but some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, there's a lot I know in this passage. There's a lot we could say, a lot we could spend time studying and thinking, thinking about, much more than I could ever hope to preach in a single sermon. Um, and like I said, we'll be back here on Easter Sunday and we will address some of the key elements of this passage uh, more in depth then. But For this morning, I want to focus on some questions that jump out at us from the text from the very beginning of the passage, back in the very first few verses there. As we look at how John begins this sort of final climactic sign for Jesus' messianic identity, it's worth stating one final time. I know we've we've done it for six weeks. This is now the seventh week of this. But just, just for the sake of clarity, in case anyone missed the message along the way, the signs of Jesus were never meant to be naked demonstrations of power. Right? They're not just power demonstrations for the sake of power demonstrations. For Jesus to show off. For Jesus to flex his messianic abilities on everybody. To impress the crowds and, and wow the masses and show them, just look what I can do. Those were never the purpose of the signs. No, the signs were always meant to be works of the Father 
through the Son to reveal who the Son is and by extension who the Father is. And if you've missed that, you've, you've, missed, you've missed the series. That's the series. The signs reveal the Son who reveals the Father. Now, in addition, though, to revealing the messianic identity of Jesus, the signs will also show us, as, as we have already seen right here in chapter 11, the signs show us that God cares about the problems in the world. They reveal that about God, if nothing else, that God cares about what's going on. God is, is at work, even, to bring healing and restoration to his broken world. Yes, that Jesus could bring Lazarus back to life is, is not only a revelation of who Jesus is, it is also a preview of Jesus' own resurrection. And by extension, his, the, the healing that his resurrection will bring to all the world. In other words, this sign, above all the other signs, is a promise. Yes, it's revelation. Yes, it is self-disclosure. Yes, it shows who Jesus is and it proves his identity. But even beyond that, the sign is a promise of coming healing and restoration that's even greater than what we see in the passage here. Now, you and I are, are modern people. You and I uh, struggle with wrapping our minds around the miraculous. And nowhere does that crystallize perhaps more clearly than in the account of the raising of a dead man. It's not something that happens often, is it? I mean, even in, even in the Bible, it's only a handful of times there's, there's anything like this. There's, there's two or three times in the ministries of, El of Elijah and Elisha. There's, there's, uh, there's the witch of Endor who brought Samuel back at least temporarily, in Samuel chapter 27, I believe it was. So four times in the entire Old Testament, anything like this happens. In the, in the life of Jesus, there were, there were two young ones Jesus brought back to life and Lazarus, and that was it. And in in, in later in Acts, there's only two accounts of, of the dead coming back to life. And other than, I think it was Matthew 25, when, when, uh, when Jesus is crucified and all the kind of crazy things are happening around the, around the area, you have the, the ground opening up and, and the dead the righteous dead coming out of the ground, we don't know what to do with that stuff. But other than that, you have those accounts and the resurrection of Jesus as the only instances in all the Bible where people who were dead came back in any sort of way. Now, I would reiterate that the resurrection of Jesus is of a whole nother order and a whole nother magnitude than all the other examples that I've listed. His, his resurrection from the dead is, a, is, a, is the resurrection. It was of a different nature even than of the others who were brought back to life, but it was more of a resuscitation than resurrection. Yes, they were truly dead, and yes, they came back to life, but they would only go on to die again. Jesus raised, was raised back to life never to die again. And that's the key difference between his resurrection and all else before it and all that comes from it ever since. But you and I view miracles and, and things like people coming back from the dead as some sort of, um, you know, suspension of the natural order. It's not normal for, dead to, for the dead to come back. That's not natural. But I would say that in the, in the perspective of Jesus, there's something about his miracles that are the restoration of the natural order. You see, death and illness and decay and suffering were never part of the original creation. They were never God's design or his intention for his creation. Yes, they were potential, they were, pos they were possible in his creation, but they were not part of his original design. And so as Jesus steps into the world and be he begins ministering and performing miracles and revealing signs, yes, he's making himself known, but he's also promising us he's making things to be the way they were meant to be. 
He's undoing all the things that have perverted and corrupted his creation. Jesus' miracles are not just proofs that he has power. Jesus' miracles are a wonderful foretaste of what he intends to do with his power to make all things new. So while the world out there, the skeptical world, the, mo- the modern world with all of its scientific enlightenment, the world views things like miracles as some sort of challenge to the mind, you and I as believers can view them as promises to the heart. That through Jesus, in Jesus alone, the world will be made right again. Jesus says as much in, in this passage. That, that yes, th- these things should be a source of comfort to our lives, but these things should also be an impetus for worship. He says as much in verse 4. Look again at verse 4, if you would. He says all this is happening. Lazarus becoming ill. The, the events that are about to unfold. The, this, these things that, that are about to take place in his, in his life and in the disciples' lives, in the life and death of Lazarus, and in, in, in the outcome of that in his family, in his community, All of this, he says, that is happening for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. Now, when I read that again this week, for probably the hundredth time in my life, or maybe more, I don't know, I was brought once again back to where we were back in chapter 9 last week. Do you remember that passage in in chapter 9 where Jesus is confronted with this man blind from birth? And And when he was asked, you know, whose sin you know, resulted in this blindness. Jesus said, well, no one. Verse 3, no one sinned. It's not because his parents sinned. It's not because he sinned. This, this evil that, that is in his life is not the consequence of a particular sin of an individual. No, this has happened that the power of God would be seen. In other words, there's a grander design. There's a grander purpose at work in, in all of these things. And what was true for the blind man is now also true to an even greater degree, in the life of Lazarus and and the others uh, connected to this story. But notice the different ways that Jesus talks about glory in this verse. Two different ways that Jesus talks about glory here in verse 4. He says, first, this happened for the glory of God. Now, when he says here, for the glory of God, he's not saying that God the Father would be praised. There's multiple ways that John uses the word glory. You and I say, I want to glorify God, and usually what we mean by that is we want to bring him praise. We want him to receive honor by this thing that I'm doing. But when Jesus says this happened for the glory of God, he's not talking about praise and honor. He's talking about revelation. In other words, this happened that God would be made known. And that is almost always how John uses glory throughout his gospel. Glory is almost every single time in the book of John connected not to praise and honor and worship. It is almost always connected to revelation. So when Jesus is glorified on the cross, he's not being praised on the cross, is he? But he's, being, he's made known. He's revealing from the cross. He's making known who God is. And so when he says it happened for the glory of God, he doesn't mean that God may, pray, may God, that God may be praised. He means that his glory may be revealed. The, the reason behind all the signs, that God's glory, that God's revelation, that God's self-disclosure would, would be manifest in the world, in the person and works of Jesus. And that's what John has said the purpose of Jesus was from the very beginning of his gospel back in the prologue. 
the, the one, the word who, was, who is God and who was with God from the very beginning. The one, as he, as he says, who was close to the Father's heart there in verse 18 of, of chapter 1. The one who's in the Father's bosom. The, the nearness, the intimacy that the Father and the Son share. The Son came from that, and in verse 14, he took on flesh and made him known. That's the purpose of the Son in the world. To reveal the glory of who God is. To make him known to people who have gone astray. Look at, look at with me. Turn over to chapter 14 if you have your, your guest Bibles. If not, it's, it's on the screen. Look what Jesus says here in chapter 14. This is Again, we're going to be here in a few weeks in, on Wednesday night. So this will be a little taste to whet your appetite. If you're interested in diving deeply into the Upper Room Discourse, listen, um, if you're interested in theology, come Wednesday night because we're going to get, we're going to get deep theologically. I'm so excited about it. All right, so come out Wednesday night if you can. But look what Jesus says here in verse um, 8, verses 8 through 11 here in chapter 14. He says this. Um, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. And Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? It's this colossal duh moment for Philip. Have you not heard anything I've said? You want me to show you the Father. What do you think I've been doing for 33 years of my life, especially the last few? I've been showing you the Father every second of every day, in every word, in every thought, in every action, in every expression, in every touch of me to the world, I've been showing you the Father. The words that I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the work you've seen me do. Jesus, we not only have the evidence and the proof of God's existence and power, but we see the very heart of the Father expressed in flesh and blood. So Jesus says, all this has happened, not just with Lazarus, all of my life. <laughs> everything that you've experienced, everything that, that I have been a part of in this world has been for the glory of God, that God would be made known. But there's a second use of glory in the same verse. And he goes on to say, so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. And that is praise and honor. So in one verse, we have the same word twice, but it's two different meanings. One is revelation, the other is praise and honor. And what Jesus is saying is that when the Father is made known, the Son is honored. Isn't that an interesting relationship that the Father and the Son share? And this is the dominant teaching all throughout the things Jesus has to say about God in John. This mutual commitment of the Father and the Son to each other's glory. The Son has come to reveal the Father and make him known. The Father speaks from heaven and confirms the Son's identity. There's, there's a mutual self-disclosure, revealing of who the other is. The Son makes the Father known. The Father makes the Son known. But then the Son brings glory to the Father, and the Father brings glory to the Son. That is the preoccupation of the inner life of God. Persons revealing the other, making the other known, bringing glory to the other. And if you don't know that about Jesus and his Father, then you don't know a thing that matters about Jesus and his Father. 
The signs of Jesus reveal who Jesus and the Father are, resulting in faith and worship of the Father and the Son. And that is essential to understanding not only John, but the whole identity and the whole person and the whole purpose of Jesus. Now, I know I have only so many moments to preach on a Sunday morning, and I know I took more moments last week than I should have. And I may take a few more this week than I should, but I hope you'll, you'll permit me to. But there's a problem here. And, and it's, it's, it's something that we can't escape, and it's unavoidable if we care at all about what the text is really telling us. Because wrapped up in all this discussion of the glory of God and the revelation of, of Jesus, Jesus revealing the Father, and the Father bringing honor to the Son, and all that discussion, right here in this climactic moment of John's sort of ultimate sign account in his gospel, right in the middle, there's, it's a pivot point in the whole thing. This major problem leaps out of the text right in our face. And it is the problem of Jesus' delay. I don't know if you felt that when I read 46 verses a moment ago. The problem of his delay. Up until now, in every sign account, a problem has been presented, the need has been expressed, and Jesus has reacted every time. Every time, but not here. Why? Some of you who uh, I'm Facebook friends with will know if you were on Facebook at all yesterday and you saw a post that I was, or posts that I was tagged in, um, you'll know that yesterday was the f- uh, five-year anniversary of my dad passing away and going to heaven. I can't believe it's been five years. Blo- it blows my mind that time has gone that quickly. And my dad, uh, like all of your own fathers, was not a perfect person. And, and we tend to sort of... Uh, in our memorialization of the deceased, we tend to talk about just how wonderful they were. And that's right. I'm not saying we need to focus on the negatives. But, but at sometimes we almost make them heroes, and sort of more than they were. And I would, never, I would never intentionally do that about my dad. I'm very aware of my dad's flaws and the areas where, you know, he made mistakes. And, and even in our relationship, the, the times when he got things wrong, of course, I'm aware I might have gotten things wrong once or twice. I don't know. But... Um, you know, I could tell you story after story about some of the silly things he did or the ways that he didn't get things right. And believe it or not, at times our relationship was strained. Especially when I became a teenager and young adult and I finally realized that I actually did know more about everything than he did. I think I almost heard some amens from the teenagers in the room. Listen, teenagers... You don't know anything. One day you'll realize how much you don't know. But listen, despite all the imperfections of my father, there's one thing I never had to doubt. And that was my dad loved me deeply. Never had to question it. And there was nothing he wouldn't drop in an instant to come to my aid in a time of need. Nothing. Nothing was too sacred for him. Nothing was more important than the needs of his children. And if it meant driving halfway across the country, at, at a moment's notice he would do it. Nothing was, was too important for him. 
And unlike so many others whose, whose fathers are seldom, if ever, there for them, my dad was always there for me. Where was Jesus? Thank you, choir, for that in Glenn, for that tremendous song. He, he hears, he knows, he's aware. Jesus, did you hear the message? Did you really hear it, Jesus? We told you. Your dear friend is very sick. It couldn't have been more clear. You were needed, Jesus. Where are you? You can hear it in the voices of Martha and Mary, can't you? When they come out, Mary originally doesn't even come out. I wonder if she just couldn't bear to look at Jesus in the face. You hear it in their voices in verse 21, verse 32. They say the same thing. It's almost as if in Jesus' absence, and they're standing around trying to talk, where is he? You, you Read between the lines. It's what's happening. You know that's what's happening. Because it's what you and I would do in the same situation. Here's Jesus out helping all these people, doing all these things, being this great healer and provider and whatever else. But in our time of need, where is he? If he'd only been here, this wouldn't have happened. And they both say the same thing when they come out because that's what was on their mind. That was what's in their heart. Yes, Martha will go on to express faith in who Jesus is. I've always believed you're the Messiah. I've always believed you're the Son of God. I've always believed you're the one that came from God. I know you can, you can do whatever God, God will do whatever you ask him. She expresses some degree of faith in the identity of Jesus, but I think beneath the surface, she doesn't trust him all the way. There's doubt in her heart about the intentions of Jesus. I may know on paper, I can write an essay on what it means that you're the Messiah, but when it comes to trusting you with, the ma- with what matters most in my life, I don't know if I can do it. Because where were you? I can tell you all day long, I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to be by your side. I'll walk with you through the valleys. I'll, I'll you know, do whatever it takes. But then when the valley comes and I'm nowhere to be found, then what? Thank you, Jesus, for the wine. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus, that you saved that groom embarrassment at that party. Wow, what a great guy. Thank you, Jesus, for the bread and the fish. We were so hungry, we would have gone a whole night without food if it weren't for Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for healing those people that you didn't even know. What a great guy. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us on the, on the sea. I mean, we've made it through plenty of storms on our own, but re- that night, thank you. That was really great. But where were you when we needed you? I think the, the manner in which the New Living Translation, which I read here, I think the manner in which the NLT renders verses 5 and 6 uh, acknowledges and even reflects the dilemma that, that is posed in the story. Look again at verses 5 and 6. I'm going to have it, uh, if you could put it up on the screen. This is the NLT. And I don't, by the way, I'll give you a little heads up. I don't think this is the right way that this should have been rendered into English. All right, so this is the translation team of the NLT trying to do their best with the Greek to be faithful to what was the, the idea of what's happening here. Verse 5, so although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. So, so you, you see how, 
how they've rendered it and what the implication is. The implication is that Jesus' delay in verse 6 was incongruent with his stated love in verse 5. And so they're sort of making an explanation, they're sort of explaining it. Yes, I know what he did was unloving to them, but be rest assured in verse 5, he does love them. That's, that's, how that's, that's what's implied in the rendering of these verses in this translation. And that, that mirrors sort of the sentiment on Mary and, and Martha's hearts as they respond to him. That, yes, Jesus, you say you love us, but where were you? Didn't come. There, there's a, there's a, a disconnect between the things you say and the things you do. If you really love me, you would have come. Your words would have, your actions would have spoken loudly. And you hear it in the others too, in verse 37. You heard it. They, the people there spectating, the ones sort of on the margins, who they're not, they're not even named, and yet they speak just as powerfully into the, 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 the sentiment that's percolating among the people there. This man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? What's with this guy? But I think, and, and maybe you'll find what I'm about to say comforting, maybe you won't. But I at least want to be honest with what the text actually says. I think the ESV has it right. And I've asked the ESV, okay, it's already up there. Look at the difference here with the ESV. This is more faithful to exactly what John wrote in the original language as we have it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Do you see the difference there? Oh, it's huge. The difference is huge. The NLT says, although he loved them, he stayed where he was. In other words, the loving thing would have been to come, wouldn't it? And we have to be told that Jesus loved them because the, he didn't do the loving thing. But the ESV renders it rightly. It's because he loved them that he stayed where he was. It changes things, doesn't it? And maybe that raises more questions than answers in your mind. But at least, according to the text, in Jesus' mind, the loving thing to do was not to come, but to stay. Oh, that changes everything. Not just in how we read this story, but how we understand our theodicy. How God, how we defend God in the face of the presence of evil and suffering in the world, it changes everything. It changes how you and I view every situation in life that doesn't go in our favor. When we cry out to God and we ask God to do this, that, or the other, you do it for them, why don't you do it for me? And we always think one thing when in fact it might be something else entirely. We can all agree that the Father's will and the Father's glory are the primary focus of Jesus' life and ministry. But how quick are you and I to assume just like I think the translator, listen, I love the NLT. There's a reason I preach from it every week, but it's not perfect. And, I'll, and I will criticize it where it needs to be criticized. And I think, they need to be, I think the translation team of the NLT, as much as I revere and respect, I know one of the men on the translation team was my professor in seminary. I couldn't love and revere him more than I do. But as much as I love and revere and respect the, the, the good people behind this English translation, I respectfully disagree with how they render these verses because I think it is wrong. And how quick are you and I, just like they, how quick are we to assume that Jesus' concern for God's glory sometimes comes at the expense of his love for people? Did you follow that question? How often do we assume, not just in the scriptures, but in our own lives, 
that God's concern for his glory sometimes comes at the expense of his love for people. In other words, yes, Jesus says, I love Lazarus, I love Mary and Martha, but God's glory is more important to me right now. I know the loving thing to do would be to go to them, but God's glory is more important, guys. You're just going to have to take one for the team right now. I would contend that Jesus is not torn here between the glory of God and his love for this family at all. Never for a second is he conflicted between the two. Not one of his actions fail to reveal the glory of God or fail to show love for people he loves. There is no conflict between the two in the life of Jesus. And his delay is not just for the glory of God, which of course it is for the glory of God. He says it, he says it as much. But it's not just for the glory of God, it's also because of his love for Lazarus and his sisters and his disciples and even the spectators. Jesus says in both instances when he's talking to his disciples and when he's talking to the crowds, this is for you. This is for your sake. This is, I'm not doing this for me. Yes, I do it for my father, but I'm doing it for you. It's for my love. I love you, and because of that, I let him die. And that is a problem for our, our very worldly, darkened, warped, sinful perspective on things. We think Jesus is conflicted between the glory of God and his love for people, and there's no conflict at all. Yes, he's, he's committed to the glory of God and the will of God. He's singularly, singularly focused on bringing revelation of the Father to the world. But also, yes, Jesus delayed and permitted death and suffering because of his love. Did you ever think, about, think of it that way before? Yeah, we're, 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 we're great at saying God permits suffering because he's bringing glory through it. But have you ever said God permits suffering because of his love? It's hard for us to fathom and, fathom and accept, isn't it? That God permits suffering in our lives. And if you're not suffering today, well, you will be suffering tomorrow. Our general Christianly way of making sense of things is clinging to the hope that God is going to use suffering for his glory. But a good theod- that's a good theodicy. That's not a complete theodicy. It's, it's, it's heading in the right direction, but it's not all the way there. God doesn't suspend his love for you in order that he might be glorified. Ever. God permits suffering because of his love. The two, his glory and his love, are never mutually exclusive. Now, if, if I know the human heart at all, I'm convinced that there's at least someone in here who's getting a little hot and bothered at what I'm saying right now. That I would dare suggest that God permits suffering because of his love. And I just want to speak to you for just a minute and say if that describes you, consider for a moment the cross. Consider the cross. The most astounding 
outrageous, incomprehensible moment in the history of the world where the glory of God and his love for the world are expressed in perfect, equal measure. There's no greater demonstration of glory than on the cross. No clearer moment of self-disclosure, but also no greater expression of the unconditional agape love of God. In all this, at the most extreme experience of human suffering in the history of the world. Because of his love, at the cross, God permits the maximum possible suffering on the most innocent possible of persons, that the fullness of his glory be made known and that faith that saves be effected. Only God can pull that off. <laughs> Hear the cry of Jesus as he's gasping for air at the end of his, of his life. My God, why have you forsaken me? Is that not the same cry of Martha and Mary and any of us when we're suffering? What, where are you? And the Father's response is, I'm doing this for my glory, but also out of love for you, for me. Perhaps what is happening here in John 11 is what's happening in your life today, right? You and I, we're in this broken world. We have all this stuff that I can't tell you how many, my prayer list has exploded in recent weeks and months of people who are hurting, sick, broken, grieving. It's unbelievable the, the weight of human misery that is resting on the, li the lives of this congregation. It's unbelievable. Jeff was telling me just the other day, he said, I can know five people off the top of my head, who lost someone they loved in recent days, just like that. It's everywhere. The, 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 the magnitude of suffering in lives cannot be dismissed or explained away superficially. And, and you and I, in the midst of all that we're going through, rightly pray, God, please, from your love, would you heal this? Would you repair this? Would you comfort? Would you take away this affliction? Will you remove the suffering? We want God to come and swoop in and clean it all up as quickly as he can. We beg him for it. But I think John would have you instead see the love of God in it. <laughs> and that's a totally different perspective indeed. At the very least, John would have you see the God who loves you in it. Whose love is never suspended for some ulterior motive. It's because he loved Lazarus and Martha and Mary and his disciples and the random spectators and you and I here today who have the sign account in the scriptures. It's because of his love for the world even. Jesus let Lazarus die. And while it's hard to understand that fully, 
Well, it's not ours to understand, is it? It's ours to believe. It's to trust and obey. The people in this passage failed to do that. Yeah, some believed, but the very ones who believe in him here, just a few page turns in the gospel later, are the very same ones staking him to a tree. But ours is to, is to trust and to obey, to depend upon the consummate goodness of God, whose ways are not our ways, whose timing is not our timing. You and I will never fully understand or know his purposes, but we can always fully trust in his intentions and in his character and in his person, his heart. The cross has proven once for all time that in all he does, God's work to bring glory to himself is never in conflict with, nor at the expense of, his unconditional love for you. For your sake, Jesus said, in your sake, in your sake, in your sake, these things have happened. I delay that you might have faith. And now I go that I might die that you might have life. That Jesus brings Lazarus back is the miraculous sign that reveals the power of Jesus over the grave. It confirms his identity as the long-awaited Messiah. But perhaps the deeper lesson here, church, for people living in this broken world is that it's not just the things that Jesus does that reveals his heart, but sometimes it's the things he doesn't do. He doesn't always heal, but he does raise the dead. He does raise the dead. Don't interpret even for a second his permitting of suffering in your life or his delay in relieving it as it ever being in conflict with his love for you. Know instead that in all things he's working for the glory of God and for the good of those he loves. We know, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for the, 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 the scriptures that inspire and encourage and bring comfort to our weary souls, but I also give you thanks and praise for the ones that challenge us, for the ones that disrupt sort of the, 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 the common expectation of, of, that we have on you and who you are and how you're going to act. And I thank you for a passage like this that, that turns the cart upside down, that, that dishevels us and confuses even. But Lord, I pray that in, in the unsettling, I pray that the result of that is not a, a doubting heart, but a believing heart. Because the truth is, this story about Jesus and Lazarus and the others ultimately means very little apart from the cross. Because the cross brings everything into clarity. And on the cross, God, you didn't ask someone else to endure the suffering that you would receive glory. No, you took it upon yourself. You played by your own rules. 
You took your own medicine, as Dorothy Sayers puts it. And you've shown us that your concern for your glory and your actions for love are never in conflict. They're never mutually exclusive. You're never going to do a thing in our lives that is unloving because you want to bring yourself glory, ever. Would you confirm that to our hearts today as we face suffering as people of faith? As we face pain and, and misery and grief and whatever else, and we're begging you to come and, and hear us and take these things away, and yet oftentimes we hear nothing. Lord, help us to hear your love in the, in the silence. Help us to hear it. The enemy doesn't want us to hear it. Our, our, our broken human nature doesn't want us to hear it. The flesh resists that. But Holy Spirit, awaken the eyes of faith to see your love in all that happens, to see your glory, your self-disclosure, and that from it we might be a people who believe and people who praise and bring honor to your name. Is there a more powerful testimony in all the world than someone who worships you in the midst of suffering? I don't think there is. And we're inspired when we see it in others, but Lord, may, the wor- may others see it in us. So help us to be a people that do just that. And I'm confident you will do great things in and through our lives. Lord, we lift these, all these things to you in, in confidence that you hear and know and care and are at work. Even if we can't see it, we can trust it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.